You're listening to Accounted For, the Canadian podcast that explores the intangibles of every career. I'm your host, Daniel Lee. Hello, hello, hello. Happy Wednesday, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to Accounted For. Today's podcast interview is with Tom Loudon, the labs manager of WeWork Toronto. So before I go into talking about the interview itself, I just wanted to make a quick reminder and request to everyone to please uh, rate the podcast on iTunes with five stars and leave a review if you enjoyed it. And because if you do that, it'll really help out in terms of getting the podcast to be seen by other people and yeah, just grow the audience to be a little wider. If you do leave a review, I will give you a shout out and the latest review has been left by the user called it's a cruel world <laughs> a cruel as in a c c r u a l it's an accounting pun and so thank you to this current auditor for leaving a nice review as well as a five star rating so this could be you as well i could give you a shout out if you do the same and so please uh, go ahead and do so and if you also want to learn a little more about me as well as maybe even like just what it's like to do this kind of podcast as well as trying to grow the company that I'm trying to grow, please uh, visit my blog at www.oldmandan.com and to stay in touch or stay in tune with my weekly developments, like my weekly article that I send out every Tuesday, um, please subscribe to my newsletter. The subscribe button's practically on like every page and so you can find it there on my website. And if you'd like to suggest uh, guests or um, you know, like, you know, you have a friend in your network who would be a really interesting person to have on the podcast, please feel free to shoot me a note in my contacts page on the website itself. Okay, so today's guest, Tom Loudon, um, is a labs manager at WeWork. WeWork is a New York-based startup that is growing in huge popularity. It's practically all over startup news as the biggest co-working space company and they have offices practically all over the world i was just in vancouver for christmas break and i saw a ton of WeWork offices all over vancouver as well and they're definitely all over toronto as well and prior to WeWork, tom built out a skill set in fundraising for the public sector and after having explored a number of different opportunities uh he decided to say okay well i think i'm gonna try something different and he became the inaugural team, maybe even, I dare say, like the founding team of Toronto's Creative Destruction Lab, which is practically an incubator based out of the University of Toronto. And after that, he went to become an investor and operator with Boat Rocker Ventures, which does like entertainment-based investing. So slightly different from what people consider to be traditional venture capital. So that's really interesting when we get into it. And he brought to life Deneen Coffee Shop, my favorite. Um, I've been a happy coffee drinker at Deneen since day one of opening so this was a really fun conversation for me to even get into and so Tom's had a very fascinating career it's just been one filled with entrepreneurial spirit and I really hope you find it as enjoyable and exciting as I did so without further ado here is my interview with Tom Loudon Hey everyone, welcome back to Accounted For. Today on the podcast, we have Tom Loudon, the labs manager of WeWork Labs Toronto. Hey Tom, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks, Daniel. 
And so for the listeners who may not be familiar with WeWork, um, given the generation of the listeners, I can't imagine that they don't know WeWork, but some of them surprisingly do not. So for them, how would you describe what WeWork is and what WeWork does? Well, I think from a strictly brick and mortar standpoint, it's a co-working space um, that's global in its scale. Uh, but it's also building a community of freelancers and entrepreneurs and trying to reduce the friction around small business and getting office space. So basically allowing you to focus on your business as opposed to your lease and your coffee program and keeping the lights on, making sure that you're actually doing the thing that you love to be doing. Gotcha. And I was surprised when we first chatted about when you were telling me how a lot of the clients tend to be now enterprise clients and not just startups. Yeah, there's been a, a large growth of uh, kind of the, um, like that standard, like large uh, Fortune 500 company. I think I think it's like 30% of the Fortune 500s are now in or have WeWork space globally. Wow. Yeah. So it's, a, it's the fastest growing segment for our customer base. Um, but at the same time, that's why, you know, my program, WeWork Labs, is there to go and counterbalance that and make sure that we're giving back to or helping startups as much as possible. Gotcha. And so for WeWork Labs, is there a kind of target market for you guys? Uh, well, yeah, it's really any entrepreneur. Um, I mean, predominantly in the technology space, but that's not to say that um, we want to look at like CPG companies, companies with physical products. Uh, but basically companies that are starting out, they're in, you know, they're either three to seven employees and they're, Figuring out how to go and capitalize their business for the first time, whether that's through venture capital, um, through uh, like trying to raise your, their seed round, or they've just received capital and now they're trying to figure out what to do. So it's, uh, I know that across the board we help companies with their ideation, but I, I think our sweet spot and where I want to focus is companies that have an idea in and around their product, um, but now they're trying to figure out which market, who's their user, who's their customer, and how do we go and actually scale that idea. Gotcha. Yeah, I think um, that is an interesting value proposition. So when, when you're providing all these services, is there an additional fee for that? Or is it more like I'm signing up for WeWork, but I'm part of like a WeWork Labs division? Yeah, so it's, it's, a, it's the same pricing structure as anything here, which kind of varies in and around a desk. Um, so for WeWork Labs, it's $600 right now um, per month per desk. And that's a dedicated desk. So that's a desk that... Um, you can, you've got a filing cabinet, you can lock your stuff in, um, you can bring in your monitor, all sorts of the, that stuff. Um, and that's pretty comparable or it's a pretty good deal compared to the other dedicated desks here in Toronto. Um, and the, the thing that kind of sweetens the pot is on top of that, you get a level of programming and mentorship, um, from me, uh, as I try to help you grow your business day to day. And then you also get access to, um, 20 over 20 other labs globally where you've got a desk and an equivalent tom labs manager there to go and help you grow your business if you decide to go and expand um or grow within a market or you're looking for funding in a particular space yeah and, and i think with more and more companies also shooting to be remote this kind of creates a middle spot middle ground where you can be remote but um you kind of have a still have a dedicated workspace, a community, and a lot of support beside you. Like I think when we were first talking, the thing that immediately popped into my mind was, yeah, because a lot of companies, even tech startups, who want to be in hardware, have to constantly tra- 
travel to Asia and there's cheaper manufacturers there and knowing that there's a WeWork office there that you can just go to um, probably takes a lot of the stress off. Yeah, and, and on top of that, it's I think you also have that labs manager there. So for for example, there's a company coming in uh, later on this week that's from Israel. They're a robotics company. And so I just got an email from the labs manager from that Israel location. I believe it was in Haifa. And um, it had the three asks, hey, Tom, what can you do to help this company when they're here? And one of them was to go and help find uh, recruit um, uh, staff and, or possible employees from different robotics um, like departments in universities. And I'm much more well positioned to go and do that than a small startup in Israel who's in robotics. So the fact that my local connections can go and help facilitate a connection for them is a, is a big ad. And it's something that I'm really excited for for the companies that I'm finding because now I can go and reach out to all of these other labs managers and provide them with the opportunity to go expand like expand on a global scale. Mm-hmm. And it it's, it sounds very much like an incubator service where you don't really need to take equity or anything though. No, no, yeah. no, no. So it's it's strictly just a um, a revenue or like rent. That's or well, no, just more paying access to a, a membership. So. Um, for us, there isn't a need to go and try to take a piece of the business, and that complicates the relationship. It complicates um, like our incentives being aligned with the company. And right now, they're perfectly aligned because we want these guys to grow, and we want to add value to demonstrate to that company that as they scale from 5 to 10 to 20 to 100, that they should be doing that with WeWork. Mm-hmm. And so before we go into kind of your... Uh, business accolades. Um, you mentioned last time we spoke about how you you're a foodie. Yeah. It, uh, in your opinion, what's the uh, what what's kind of, what's the threshold like the benchmark to classify yourself as a foodie? I don't know. I, like I, I know there's like there's probably two schools of thought on it. Like either you've got to be um, you've got to uh, like be trained as a chef or you make your own food, but I know tons of people that are just as passionate about food and they don't know how to turn on their oven. So for me, it's just like blind passion. I just love food. I think it's, to me, one of the the best uh, things to connect with someone over. Um, one of the reasons that I got into cooking specifically, moving, like transitioning from the guy who just loves, you know, to Instagram his food at a restaurant to Instagramming his food at home was I just loved being able to make a meal with someone um, because it was so much more finite. I mean, everything that we work on in like at, at any job, it just seems like that project always seems to linger on and on and you never really have any like actual end point to what you're doing because every time you do something right, it's like, okay, well, let's continue to grow this or let's go and, and build this. And in contrast, you make a beautiful piece of, you know, you make, you slow cook ribs for 12 hours. There's a finite moment where you get to see these juicy, beautiful lacquered ribs and you get to eat them and you get to eat them and enjoy them with a bunch of people. You get to make other people feel great. And, uh, and that's nice because I think it contrasts, not, not to say that we're not trying to build amazing things, but it's like, it's nice to actually get to celebrate and, and reap the rewards of your hard work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, and so 
do you have are you are you one of those uh hardcore instagram power users with hundreds of thousands of fans <laughs> no 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 <laughs> i my my instagram feed is mostly it was mostly food you can see when i had a or when my wife and I had a baby daughter because the number of uh, baby photos is skyrocketed. So it's it's a good counterbalance now. It's more of a, a father blog, father uh, father meat blog, I guess. Um, but it's been uh, no, I I just love I, I just love food in general. Gotcha. And th- this love for food um, was it instilled earlier on like did you want to be a chef when you were a little child no i just uh like we always my family would always have uh like just a strong sunday night dinner culture and uh and i remember like always loving that when i went out to university um i realized that we were just eating (laughs) constantly eating out all the time didn't know how to do any of this stuff and and knew that there possibility because I'd grown up in a family with with good food. It was like okay, well, there's an opportunity to go do this. I'm gonna learn how to figure out food, and because I I think it's like figure out how to cook, and and I know that's kind of a fundamentally like common thing, but I don't think a lot of people actually try to put focus into building their meals, and that's why there's so many different options that are revolving around reducing the friction of of like cooking in general, whether it's you just order food, you're going to pick up food, or you're um, or you're being given all of the ingredients, and you know your hand is being held while you go and cook all these things. I think there's a reason that that's all there. It's there's underlying like passion for food. I I think I'd fall uh, stark contrast to um, the founder of uh, the what's the name of that um, that sludge that. Uh, that they Silicon Valley company that's got the um, oh, the name escapes me now. What's the product? I'm trying. To, oh, it's like named. It's Soylent. That's it. Oh, Soylent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sludge. <laughs> yeah. Well, like the, his whole concept was is like, oh, eating is just a waste of time. It's a waste of productivity. Therefore, like I'm gonna create something that allows me to never have to eat again. I'm just gonna take this. Weird soylent. Like I, I don't want to be in that world. I want to be in the world where, where I, I'm, I think the the European, like uh, my European ancestry is, you know, making sure that I still have a siesta or try to fight for a siesta and like a nice large meal. So, yeah, I think I think there was an article about how someone did soylent for a full month or two months and then they they got heavily depressed and you know, this it's not a cause and you know cause and effect relationship but there's still a lot of correlations and i'm but i'm still sure there's a huge impact from not yeah enjoy from eating i don't know yeah it's like removing some component of humanity i think you're it's gonna mess with your brain you yeah know? yeah no i totally agree um your ancestry loudon where's that from uh it's scottish scottish so uh yeah, the it's some some town in the middle of like northern Scotland. The town of Loudoun is where we're from. Oh, and, okay. Uh, and I don't know much about it. I know that my great grandfather went and visited there and sent a telegram to my grandfather, his, his son, um, to like just saying, you know, stop. There's a reason that our ancestors left here. Stop, because it's probably just rainy and just terrible, but probably beautiful as well. You know, it all depends on what your version of uh, acceptable, I guess, rain is. Yeah, I think I was reading about how I think Scotland actually has some amazing um, 
scenic like trails that are these hardcore kind of adventurers actually go to and these are you actually camp out and oh. it's like multi-day trips and um it's i think it's one of like the key like core achievements like there's this british guy who's like climb climb he's like the youngest guy to climb everest or something and he he's from the uk and he does a lot of trekking oh cool yeah and yeah. scotland kind of came up um and so if we kind of take a dive into your career like you went to queens you did business there yeah did you why did you pick business is that something you always had an interest in um yeah my uh like my grandfather had been prominent at molson and so i'd always been kind of inspired to go do that and then i remember looking at all the different programs for university and queen's commerce was like the hardest one to get into so i was like okay well that's where i'm going to try to go and get into and then um lucked out and uh yeah it was a it was definitely yeah like i'd say outside of any family pressure to be an engineer because my father was an engineer um it was you know pressure to go into some sort of specific stream in undergrad um and queens was was a great my, my both my parents had been there um and then the commerce program was awesome yeah and so i guess you you related more to your grandfather than your father <laughs> well well it was like kind of a compromise because he was a, an ivy grad uh, my grandfather and so uh so it was like kind of I either appeased both of them or I let both of them kind of down. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, find, finding that middle. And it seems that that kind of influence might have um, still had an impact since after school you went to, your first job was as a brand manager at Care Operations, which is kind of, it's a CPG company yeah. and stuff. It's, it owns restaurants. And so um, I'm wondering, did you have that inkling to, as, uh, uh, I guess, buttoning foodie in university to think you know i want to be in the restaurant business and yeah yeah i I think like that's one of the reasons why caro is interesting to me like all of the brands i kind of knew um i got to work on the kelsey's brand um but i think what i i learned there is like yeah I, i do love food but i didn't necessarily want to go and market the food that was coming out of of Kelsey's not to knock the experience but it just wasn't something that I had grown up with or resonated with and I didn't really want to make a burger that I was going to sell to somebody that probably didn't need another burger yeah I think um, my my first internship in university I was doing business development for a media company did I tell you about that no okay so it was for a startup media company like they were trying to make magazines um, that like digital digital magazines where you do click on um, like a clothing item then it would lead you to the Amazon thing where it, you could buy it oh cool I don't think it really worked out but it got a lot of funding from some Chinese companies, oh really I think yeah so this was in Vancouver yeah um, and I was in business development which is a very nice way of calling you know cold calling sales yeah um, <laughs> and so you know I'd be doing hundreds of cold calls and getting a lot of fuck yous uh, <laughs> from people saying what kind of scam is this yeah and this was in like 2010 and so I still then like putting a magazine online just was not common I think. right um and so and i didn't even believe in the product i just couldn't get around it it was just a job that yeah. i just took on didn't even know what the startup was and that's when for me like it hit about if i'm ever going to do sales or pitch something it's if i don't believe in it, it's going to be really hard for me to eat the shit and yeah go on well because you're going to spend all of your day like a good chunk of your day thinking about this stuff and if you're not totally 
100% behind the company that you're working for, then you're going to have this odd or terrible dissonance because you're spending all your time promoting something that you don't actually believe in. Um, and the result's going to be that you're just not going to be happy. You're yeah. spending the waking hours of your day dedicated to somebody else's dream. It better be the right thing, right? Yeah, no, totally. And so after Kara, uh, you went to join MS Society and fundraising. And I think the thing that caught my eye about um, these two transitions was Kara, you spent about five months in and MS, you are about nine months in. And there, I find that there is a stigma, especially in like the business world, um, just because that's the world that I'm used to where a lot of my friends, they're in places they might not like and they but they say I'm going to stick it out for two years if I don't do it for two years and people are going to think it's weird and so I have to stay for two years yeah. and I'd always challenge someone why, why like it's so arbitrary two years doesn't really mean anything you could have amazing experiences in five or six months and or have really bad experiences in two years like it doesn't really tell how much a person grows in like a two-year span what did you think about any of that when you left care after like five months yeah like it's a it is a tough thing it, there's definitely a stigma there and something that um in your head uh you really start to worry about um but it's something that i think a lot of founders and startups do is just fail often and fail fast right and so if this isn't a good fit then um, then you should be moving on to the next thing. And it wasn't like Kara was, wasn't the right fit. The MS Society was more, it was a junior position in the fundraising world. And in order for me to be looked at from a development and fundraising standpoint, I needed to put a brand on my name. And so the, the like working, it was actually, it was, a, and it was a fun experience. I was helping essentially cold call and then run the MS readathon. So I get to go to all these schools and promote kids to read for raising uh, research into multiple sclerosis. Um, but yeah, it, it, like one, you should be the moment that there's some inkling that something isn't working out, you should be like cutting off the limb <laughs> because uh, otherwise it's just going to be, it's going to grow and be more and more of a distraction. And that, that goes the same for, you know, when you're building a team, if there isn't any like fit, you shouldn't be trying to go and make this thing work. You should just be like removing that part and moving on. Um, but then also going into each of those roles and understanding or recognizing what you could be getting out of them and then framing your, your time at that organization around that instead of around, oh, well, just an arbitrary two years sounds comfortable, right? I, I could I could be there. Um, so for me, going into like one, Kara wasn't the fit for me. And then two, um, the MS Society was more, well, I needed to get my fundraising chops. I needed to understand kind of the, I guess, like in any or like any industry, you spend a whole bunch of time learning like the lexicon that communicate like what people talk about and at a certain point you understand that um, that language and that all of a sudden allows you to open up to a whole bunch of opportunities I think you know a lot of the people on your podcast have their CA and the whole concept of the CA is really helping you understand the language of business the language of finance 
And then once you've actually understood it, you know, you've gone through your Mr. Miyagi moment of auditing all of these companies, you start to realize, oh, okay, well, this is how I need to communicate this piece to, um, to this business, or this is how I approach this business problem. For me, the MS Society was understanding the world of like philanthropy and fundraising, and, uh, and it helped vault me into a role um, over at UHN at the Toronto General and Western Hospital Foundation, where I was able to go and start to try to look at making larger impacts um, through corporate partnerships and like external events. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think it, like you alluded to this, it's like the um, having that intent in mind of what, what am I trying to get out of this position? What am I trying to learn? And yeah, I think in each position, depending on what your purpose and intent is, there is that uh, point of you know diminishing returns, and it's you know it would seem the rational and logical step to be in the positions where you gain the most ROI, and once that point hits where you're not getting the same ROI anymore, then you would go into the next thing that will give you the high ROI for your personal growth. And I think that's the that's the way of thinking it. I think from a internal scorecard mentality instead of an external one where you're thinking what's the recruiter going to think yeah. of this uh two oh know? he's just been jumping around all over the place yeah although nowadays like i think that there's also there's the other side if you've been at an organization now for like in my like time if you've been around for 10 years then there's another question it's like okay well why have they been at that one place for that long? Like, why hasn't someone poached them yet? Or why hasn't someone, like, why haven't they decided to move on? Maybe they don't know how to grow personally. But, but the reality is, is that it's all how you wax your story and how you communicate it. So as long as you're figuring out how you can go and build yourself or, um, or grow your career within one organization or multiple organizations, it's like to me. It's it's really asking. Okay, well, what kind of roles are you doing, and what kind of more responsibility or leadership are you taking on as you progress? Yeah, no, totally. And I think it, when I was in school, uh, we had the the co op program, and I think in hindsight that was an amazing thing that I should have taken more advantage of. Like I, when I talk to university students now, I tell them about, man, that's a guaranteed short-term relationship that you have no commitment to take advantage of and try as many different things as you can like don't do what i did and stay with one firm for (laughs) three accounting terms just because that's the fastest way to get the ca but you can always do that later on yeah um it's so much easier to explore when you're younger than um, when you come out but even then like i've had three different careers and none of them have ever had two years yes so um it's harder but still definitely doable well it also just allows you to like expand your network and for me it's probably also there's probably some short attention span piece in there as well but like the the interesting thing is is that there's a whole lot of applications um for what i've done in uh, like philanthropy to what i've done in branding to, that have helped me both on the the fun like the venture capital side to running a small business. So it's and it and then now working at WeWork Labs, it's allowed me to have a large kind of um, web of people that I can connect to a variety of different companies in different spaces. Yeah, yeah. It's it's funny how things like that turn out. It's like as if you planned it, but you didn't at yeah, all. And it's just, no. It just ended up going that way. No, but you try enough stuff. It's almost like. 
you know, your career is like a block of marble and you're not necessarily, um, like you're chipping away at all the different parts that aren't you and the end result is the beautiful thing it's not like you're going into it being like okay well i'm going to make this this lovely bust of daniel daniel the uh michelangelo's daniel michelangelo michelangelo david david David. i thought i had it anyway i was thinking david Yeah, yeah, yeah 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 um but it's more what's left over is probably the ideal thing that you want to do in your life and i still don't think I'm anywhere near that. I think it's still a pretty ugly looking block of marble for me, but I'm definitely understanding a couple of things that I, I don't want to do and, and a couple of things that really do like charge me up and make me feel energized throughout the day. Yeah. And so after this kind of you know, continuous searching, you ended up at UHN where you end up staying a few years. So there was some, there's probably something that clicked there and you're doing more fundraising there. Was that where you started really growing your expertise in that space? What made you stay for... Um, yeah, the previous yeah, tenure. yeah. Well, there was a, a whole bunch of different projects across the board. The interesting thing about UHN and Toronto General and Toronto Western and Princess Margaret and Toronto Rehab are that the there's a multitude of different things that the healthcare system is doing. And like from a Canadian standpoint, from a Toronto standpoint, like UHN is this powerhouse of all of these amazing kind of cutting edge um things that touch so many different people so on the one side it was neat to learn about all of these amazing kind of futuristic methods of saving lives but then it was also amazing to talk to the like the patients who've been through these processes and to see how this had like saved their life or changed their lives for the better um so when i got to work in interacting with these people it was it was it didn't it didn't ever feel like a sales job it was you know it was being able to provide and tell a story of how uh, a healthcare system and the people within it are making an impact on so many so many different people's lives hmm. and given that kind of role how did you identify yourself what kind of identity did you um kind of behold it was it someone who's like a salesperson a fundraiser or like you're doing so many different things and you've done so many things like up to that point did you have some kind of identity uh not really because like and and again this is probably why i got the itch to to move on um was that like i was seeing i I saw myself more as like a a connector because i was seeing all these doctors and scientists and researchers who are building amazing technology or treating patients. And, and I was helping go and talk to donors and tell them these stories of the impact. So it wasn't any type of cold call where, you know, like I'm trying to convince you and you've never heard of UHN or healthcare before. It was more, these people are predisposed to understand healthcare and want to donate to it. I'm providing you with a story that shows that your money is making an impact. Um, and, and that was kind of the neat thing. So, you know, I got to do that from like groups that would come in and say, Hey, we're going to be running this golf tournament or we're going to be running this event and we want all this money to go to here. And, and I would help go and structure what that event would look like, how to communicate that, go out and find a, a patient or a story that would resonate there. And then like to the other side, like I ran, um, this, uh, at the Toronto Western, I ran, the Fairchild 
Radiothon, which was like a telethon. Um, and Fairchild is a Cantonese radio station up in Richmond Hill. Um, and so people would come in. They'd be call, like calling in to go and uh, talk about, like they'd talk to doctors, they'd talk to nurses. And the moment the radio, like the radiothon started, it's entirely in Cantonese. And so, like, for me, I have no idea what's going on. I, I do not speak Cantonese, but we'd have, like, people blocking the, like, the entrance to the Toronto Western because they'd be, like, driving down to go in line and give money because of the impact that, um, that the Toronto Western Hospital had had on um, the Cantonese community. And that was really kind of amazing to see the impact of an organization, the impact of, like, a set of people can have on on a large scale community and that was really kind of uh, awesome to be a part of yeah and um so after, after that you you know you had this kind of connector mentality and it seems very fitting that you'd go to your mba ut and then continue on to the creative destruction lab where you it's kind of like an incubator where you're still connecting a lot of people yeah um and it's but you rejoined cdl in the early stages like it was you're practically like one of the founding team members yeah well yeah there's a, you know they've got their definition of their founding members i was uh i was a student in the inaugural experimental class uh like i remember getting this email like probably in june between first year and second year um and it was like this hey we're testing out this class where we pair up MBAs with early stage companies and um, in, it's like a very select group and you need to fill out this long application where you're writing like these essay tests on how you'd value these companies and all this stuff. So there's like, I don't know, you give that to any MBA or any type A and and they're gonna see oh okay like this is a limited there's only a limited number of people who can be in this thing great okay i want in oh like i have to it requires a lot of work oh it must be valuable then and so um and and it was it was great because all the stuff that was in there was really interesting and through that class i learned that you know all of my answers that were on that first application were entirely wrong um but yeah so the the idea that creative destruction lab was one you know there is a gap in um the market for helping connect new burgeoning entrepreneurs with good advice and there's a lot of advice out there um but it's hard for an early stage founder to really find a uh, like to create the right filter to understand who to talk to and who not to talk to um, and and the biggest kind of high level was is that you know a founder has a thousand things on their to-do list that are all on fire and if we can connect them with somebody that knows that to-do list um, and can go and point out well I know all of these guys are on fire but these are the three ones that you need to put out right now then um, then that's going to move that company a little bit forward and as a result they're going to succeed and we're going to start to create a connection between that mentor and that founder and the end result hopefully will be that um, that founder or that mentor will actually you know write a check and invest in that company and we've then created a relationship that will start that company off on the right foot gotcha and so the CDL, CDL it seems 
it's I'm still trying to grasp my head around how these incubators work, especially the university-backed ones, like the DMZ at Ryerson. Yeah. Is it, is it purely like fully owned by the university, funded by the university, and if they invest, the equity is like owned by the university? Is that how it works? Um, I can only speak to to UFT. Yeah, CD. Um, but yeah, there was no equity. Again, much like WeWork Labs, when what I really liked about it was there was no equity exchange between oh. the university and and the company and the program. The CDL program is actually entirely free, um, but it's a very rigorous, you know, again, limited number of people getting in and a lot of work up front. Um, that's your filter. And um, and the end result is, is that you can kind of pick and choose the, the, like, the pedigree of company going in there because that's where for the CDL, that's going to maintain that mentor network, the, the G7 or ML7 or whomever. Um, those guys are only going to show up to that thing, one, if you value their time, and two, if you provide them with amazing founders that, you know, no, their normal path, uh, like their normal ecosystem is not going to find. And gotcha. so, like, for us, it was a lot of fun because you'd go to all of these different departments across UFT, across the University of Waterloo and Montreal and Ottawa, and you'd find these amazing PhDs, these graduate students who are building some, some, some had like a framework for how they were going to make a business out of it. Others were just like, here's my patent and this, or here's my piece of technology. Like I, I really want to do something with this, like help me. And so we try to go and do that. And that was, that was pretty satisfying. And so that, this became a full-time job. Like you were a student as kind of helping out the CDL. And then you, after you finished your MBA, you ended up doing this for like another two years. Yeah, yeah. So um, we built up, we went through about three cohorts um, in like a standard kind of any type of com- any type of science based IP, and then we we recognized that UFT actually had a pretty strong, actually the strongest, maybe outside of the University of Waterloo, um, or sorry, University of Montreal, um, strongest bench of PhD level machine learning and artificial intelligence like graduates and so we started to say all right well let's double down on ai it's going to be a thing and um and all of these scientists are either getting poached by they like the profs themselves are also like working as a chief scientist at facebook or google so there's something there let's go and find a bunch of different companies specifically in that vein let's go and find a bunch of different mentors and investors that are just looking at that a bleeding edge of um artificial intelligence and then let's build a large um conference that revolves around that and so that was kind of my final year at the CDL was building out the AI stream and seeing how do we scale um, our program when we only take 25 companies and usually eight or nine actually graduate. Um, how do we go and do that, replicate it, but in the vein of an AI company? And are there similarities and what stark differences are there for that type of company versus the company that we traditionally see? Gotcha. Yeah, I, I guess, you know, you've... Uh, swell job at it because when I go to the CDL website, it's very, it seems very oh, yeah. AI, AI focused. And um, I think like we also now have like, the Vector Institute in Toronto as well to yep. help with the AI push. And it's uh, it's funny because when I talk to people from Montreal, they'll say, ah, they're nowhere close. And then we talk to people in Toronto, it's like, oh, no, we're close. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's, uh, <laughs> but it's, it's a good competition to have. And, totally. Yeah. And it, what it does is, is it creates 
like buzz around trying to build something here in Canada. And I, I think that's the other big piece for the CDL and for a lot of the people in the kind of Waterloo, Toronto, Ottawa, Kitchener, water or like the corridor, whatever we're calling this little strip in Ontario is like, how do we go build amazing Canadian companies that go and scale and make a global impact? And, and that's what programs like across the board are trying to do at varying levels from, you know, that guy who's got an idea but has no business plan to that company that is like going and trying to figure out how it's going to raise its Series A and how it's going to scale like beyond North America. All right. And so after, after this time at CDLA, you ended up going to Boat Rocker Ventures and Correct me if I'm if I'm wrong. Um, Boat Rocker Ventures is the successor of Temple Street Productions. Yeah, right? yeah, which so, is where you did your internship. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. so Temple Street Productions was a traditional, uh, well, I guess a sort of traditional uh, TV production studio, um, and then they were uh, bought by Fairfax and and became it rebranded as Boat Rocker, um, and their pursuit was to basically go and grow themselves by, through acquisition and also on uh, in, in a smaller sh- frame, go and invest in early stage media and media tech companies. Um, and that's why I was brought on board because of that, that opportunity. But I quickly learned that the venture team was a catch-all for a lot of other projects that they were doing, both on the property side, so just traditional like leasing and managing the purchasing of their buildings, to uh, like their hospitality investments, which had started um, way back with South of Temperance, but then um, spread out to the Landings Group here in Toronto, and then also a small a one shop coffee shop, Deneen, um, where I spent a for like most of my time for the last year going and helping scale. So I'd started just typically on the VC side, looking at and investing in media-related technology companies. And the next thing you know, I'm knee-deep in espresso beans, understanding the you know the the scale and understanding of coffee. Yeah, like, I'm trying to I'm trying to unpack this. So how how did you get the start at Temple Street? Uh, I had met with a friend who uh, I had been talking about what I was doing, uh, my focus on venture capital and private equity, that's where I wanted to go. Um, also just a general passion of food, which was evident on my Instagram and everywhere. And one of the guys that I had been talking with was saying, oh, well, you should talk to um, my bosses. Like they they own a bunch of restaurants, they've got this TV production studio, like so they, it's like they, they're kind of doing it all. And, uh, and so I worked for them um throughout the summer and i was just a like the the guy who tried to figure out how to get stuff done and and that was it was a really interesting role because you know it taught me that yeah you you don't really need a whole wealth of knowledge in a particular area you just need the balls to go and execute on it and that's exactly what those guys had done several times over um, at Temple Street, it was started uh, by these two lawyers who had seen that the biggest issue um, with making TV shows is that legal work, lawyers, are really expensive. And so these these guys realized, hey, you know what? We're doing all these deals on these shows that we'd never watch. Like, why don't we go pick some shows, save cost on us doing the legal work, 
and and will succeed. And so they bought um, Temple Street Productions and then slowly started to go and choose better content and, and they were just more efficient on the negotiation side. And the same thing happened with um, how they built their like their restaurants. It was there wasn't a restaurant around, you know, uh, for bankers and lawyers at young or at Young and Richmond. So let's go, let's go and build it. And and then next thing you know, they were able to go and figure out how to go and um, run that restaurant. And and then lastly, the the same thing was happening with Deneen. It was an idea that um, you know there's no ideal coffee place for a banker or lawyer in the financial core. There's, there's great places and you know, uh, like Starbucks, for example, is, is kind of the standard for most people or in contrast, you've got Moss Moss or, or Dark Horse. And so in the case of Dark Horse, you've got a very hipster, like a great coffee shop, but it's going to be an intimidating thing to a lawyer. And on top of that, that lawyer is probably never going to take that client to either Dark Horse or, um, or Starbucks because both don't meet the kind of, you know, um, teak wood, like uh, highly classy. Board. White marble. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So it doesn't fit the brand of, of, you know, the Tory's lawyer or the Goodman's lawyer or RBC or TD. So for us, it was like, let's make a beautiful place that is almost an extension of, uh, of, of one of those guys, like their boardrooms. So they can go and show off like casually, hey, this is, well, this is the kind of coffee and this is the kind of like restaurant space that you have in the downtown core. It's giving that allure that we would see when we were in New York and you'd go to La Colombe and you'd see this beautiful space and like lovely architecture and delicious coffee. So that was kind of the impetus for it. And that's how we scaled or that's that was kind of the mantra in mind was let's build something beautiful and let's provide amazing coffee and beautiful service um, and people will come. And I think we were right on that um, it, because all of those spaces are now incredibly busy. And uh, and so it's been a it was an interesting journey in that space, which all came back to the idea of, OK, we'll go out and find out how to go and do something go like hey we're gonna go build a coffee shop go find out how we can go and build a coffee shop yeah i think the when i think about restaurant business a lot of people i think the rule of thumb the rule of thumb when you're in like even business school would be hey don't start a restaurant business because 95 percent fail but also it's more like but five percent succeed yeah so what's the five percent doing and i think the cool thing about hearing about that story is just you know the founders are lawyers and it's truly catering to, you know, what's the audience that we know and it's just, you know, it's like eating your own cooking or scratching your own itch where yeah. what did we want? And yeah, that's like the differentiating factor. Like not the the average Joe restaurant guy or the average Joe coffee shop owner won't know that world if they weren't part of it. And that was like, I guess that's where you're different and that's where you could actually succeed in um, opening up Deneen and, you know, hitting up that niche audience or like opening up South of Temperance, which is a great bar, which unfortunately it's gone now. Yeah. But it, when it was running, it was highly successful. Um, and so, yeah, I think that that's, that's honestly, uh, it's quite fascinating for me when I like hear about these kind of business stories where it's an, in, it's an industry which is considered to be highly competitive and you're not likely to succeed, but you could also look at it the other way and find like, how can we succeed? 
Yeah. Yeah, it's a tight margin, but it's also, yeah, when you see all these people fail, it's, you got to understand what the noise is in the market. And, and usually for us, it like came down to one, like location. And that's a mantra for all restaurants, but like we spent a lot of time going and meticulously figuring out the ideal spaces for this and then building it around, don't like not necessarily trying to specialize, but be known for something or else, um, or else it's going like, if you're going to try to be everybody's like everything, you're going to end up failing. And so for us, it was, we need to, this place needs to be gorgeous and it needs to be the space that you're taking photos of and sharing everywhere. And I guarantee you look up the hashtag Deneen and there's probably countless number of girls in beautiful shoes just taking photos of the tiles on each of the floors or photos of the beautiful latte art that's sitting on some nice Carrera marble. And those elements allow our brand to just propagate throughout the city. And, and a lot of other coffee shops are able to go do that through their design or through their product or, or through their service. And so we decided, no, we're going to make this place gorgeous and we're going to have delicious coffee. Mm-hmm. And so after you left Temple Street, you know, you went to the CDL and all that. Did you constantly keep in uh, contact with the boat rocker folks because you had kind of a thought back in your mind that, you know, I might do that later on? Well, yeah, like I'd worked with um, the CEO, John Young. He'd been a guy that I would continued to stay in touch with because he was a great guy to learn a lot from. I'd been one of the reasons why I went and worked at Boat Rocker was because of John and and his general idea, like ideas around how to go and grow business. And there was like, for me going over to Boat Rocker, it was, okay, I can learn a lot from working directly with John and understanding how he goes and attempts to go and scale a business. Um, working directly with, you know, a guy who's like core is an entrepreneurial spirit is a great thing to have because you really start to um, like approach approaching any no it's more like well this is a it's a, it's more of a negotiation it's like it's no right now but how can I change this so that I can make that a yes and so that was a lot of like both working directly for him and staying connected with them at the CDL I found a lot of um, value from learning from him that I could then go and imbue onto the companies that I was helping at the CDL. Yeah, and I think even Boat Rocker Ventures itself is a very unique kind of investing company where, you know, it's just so different from traditional companies where you have traditional private equity where it's a very LBO model or even venture capital, they tend to focus on very asset light software companies or it has to be the quote unquote Silicon Valley labeled tech. Yeah. Um, but Boat Rocker is saying this venture style investing for, you know, these low margin, heavily asset utilizing businesses, which still need to be funded and it seems like they're playing in a very unique uh, market itself is that something that really um, intrigued you when you were looking to get more into like the investing world well yeah because it was it was an interesting time to be in a media company because you had the rise of the content creator like you had the rise in a huge change in how production was happening on top of that you had a huge change in how um, like 
funding of traditional content was happening because one you've got netflix on the one side coming up and saying okay well we're gonna broker we're gonna take all of the content we're gonna pay these guys whatever they have but we'll have global rights to that content whereas the traditional broadcaster would say okay well we will own the rights within north america or within canada to go produce this show but then we'll give you the ip afterwards and you can go sell it wherever um, as Netflix grew in its like in its pattern and cable started to, to die down, the broadcasters started to renegotiate. Okay, well, actually, we're gonna like we're gonna keep the the rights to distributing that globally. And and as a production studio, you didn't have a lot of bargaining power in the guy who's literally writing the check for you to go make that TV show. Mm-hmm. So boat rockers reaction into investing into media into acquiring large production companies was a result of seeing the the tide changing and and the like purse strings tightening from their traditional funder so either how do you go and reduce your cost or how do you go and extract more value uh, globally and so that's where you know ventures was created there was um, a digital side like a boat rocker digital was built um, which was around gaming and social, or like social media and uh, just general influencers. Boat Rocker Rights, which was a full um, department that's there to go and buy content and then redistribute it globally, all in the purpose of going and trying to figure out how to go and increase the margin that we could see from our our group. Um, and like my role in in Boat Rocker was diverse because one, it wasn't just going to be looking at investing in media companies, which I quickly learned when I was there, um, it was also looking at, okay, well, can we buy a television studio? If we've got this many different companies um, producing content for us, then, and we're basically taking the money from Bell or Rogers and paying for um, and paying for studio space, well, why don't we pay ourselves studio space and we can probably make that margin there as well. And so it, was a, a an awesome experience to work for a group of people that kept looking at that. It was like there was no there was never any like, well, oh, you can't do that because that's not what a production company does. It's like, no, no, no let's just go let's find out, let's go and do that. Let's see what happens. And um, and again, you know, if you fail, you you cut your losses and you're like, okay, we can't do this. Let's close this down or it's hey, this is really interesting and we've been able to go take that bet. Yeah, no, that sounds, it sounds like such an amazing opportunity, especially for someone who wants to take the path of an investor. And so you were on this investor path, and then you ended up kind of becoming more like a full-time operator of a coffee shop. Yeah. Um, and I, I sent you the uh, episode where I interviewed Armin from Moss Moss. Is, is your experience uh, similar to that in terms of operating a coffee shop? Oh, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> you've got, like, it's it's a different world to uh, to go and build a shop that is constantly on and interacting with their customers from, you know, morning to like basically six or seven o'clock at night. Um, and, and on top of that, it's a different, different type of staff member. You've either got a barista who's doing this because it's a job. And then like there's a 5% who are like blindly passionate about coffee um, and you get to work with these people and you get to see how much they love like a, a product or how much they love Deneen. There are a lot of like 
um, staff members who worked over time who really felt a connection to their team and to the brand. Um, and it was really interesting to see because it, like at, at a certain point, you're seeing the, the, the guys that I was working for where it had built this brand, but you actually see a, a team of people really take that brand and build a culture underneath it, which was kind of really neat to see. Um, but yeah, you know, you're, you're grinding out to make <laughs> literal grinding, um, to go and produce coffee for a variety of people. And, and it's, it's definitely, uh, a tough business to, to go and operate and to manage. Um, but it's, really rewarding because you know it's it's tangible you're not you're you're actually going and tracking sales and and the cost of like the business you can see right there and it's not you know you're you're setting up a contract that's going to last for this long or you're doing a consultancy or like a a consulting job on this building x or some intangible component for a new organization no, you're you you're trying to sell coffee day to day, and uh, and you're seeing if more people are showing up or less people are showing up, and it's directly related to the decisions you're making uh, in in that business. Mm-hmm. And so so far, you know, after your MBA, you were at CDL. You were kind of more of an advisor, investor, and then you're at Boat Rocker, very investor, and at Denine, now you're an operator. So you've kind of done the advising, investing, and operating train. Someone, you know, I, I might think that okay, after doing all this, maybe you'd go and be a full operator and be an entrepreneur of your own company. Um, what what was your decision like to, like, did you think about starting your own company after Deneen? Or, and like, if if not, so like, why, why did you end up not doing that and coming to WeWork? Well, yeah, I, like, definitely that was where my head was. Um, as I was wrapping up, opening the third location, it was like, okay, well, what's, what is my... What is the thing that I'm going to be blindly passionate about and grow? And and so I started going down that path of researching a bunch of different um, projects. And and while I was doing this, this opportunity came uh, like about for WeWork Labs, where I saw an opportunity to go and bring something to Toronto that was it, like to me is a huge game changer and a huge piece of value. Um, as I started to do more and more research on why I wanted to work for WeWork, it was like, I looked at it as I've never worked for an organization that large that's been able to scale that quickly and, and has been able to grow its own culture and community so well. Like I want, I want to go, like I want to be a ghost in the shell and understand like what's actually happening in this space. And, um, and so on, on top of that, it's like it's providing me a role that you know lands on one of the biggest things that I've enjoyed throughout any of my career, and that's connecting people to go and help them grow their business. So for me, I'd already have like that muscle trained, and now I'm I'm being backed by a huge organization that is going and trying to to scale accelerators through WeWork's global scale. It was like, well, this is an opportunity that I can't, I can't just uh, like say no to right now, and and I haven't really like had any fleeting moment of regret. It's been an amazing team to work with, and and it's been an amazing team, like that uh, that I, I I now have such a larger reach. 
if I was going and building a company and I was looking at doing something in in the like food and beverage space, like my my network would be predominantly Toronto and there's nothing wrong with that. Um, but now like I'm interacting with people globally um, in in the innovation space, finding out what's happening from you know Shanghai to um, to Sao Paulo to New York to DC. And I'm learning that you know there's there's this huge space of all of these people who are trying to help companies, and uh, and it's amazing to actually get to interact with them, see what's working in their market, what doesn't work there, and being able to pull on their expertise to go help our companies. And uh, so for me, this was just a an easy uh, like a no brainer that fit you know that that checked all the boxes for a fit in. The passion department for me and then in terms of what I can learn from building like from working in such a large organization um, I think will help me go and build what like help me go and actually scale whatever I was going to be going to do or thinking about um, so that's the hope right now yeah no and I think um, you put it so eloquently well in terms of how it fit with your mental model that you had envisioned and so if you were to walk me through what your day is going to look like today, um, right now, t- Tuesday morning, we're recording this. And so what, what does the rest of your day look like, if you can walk me through that? Yeah, so, um, well, right now I'm trying to find more companies to go fill my space. So I'm sitting down with, I think, three companies this afternoon to go and tell them about WeWork Labs, learn more about their company, and figure out how I can go and help them and if it's the right fit. Um, right after this, I'm actually meeting up with uh, um, Michael Kravishik from Luminary. Yeah, yeah. Um, because I'm going to tell him about the program, and I want him to be another part of my network to help these companies specifically because I think there's a huge opportunity there. Uh, and then end of the day, I've got our, like the labs, my lab manager weekly meeting uh, for all of the like it's Canada and the US like that general call so we actually go um, like all I believe there's 10 managers on that call we go through the wins losses and asks for each of us just to give an update and say hey you know this was like so for me it's that we had our big kickoff last week um, I want to understand, you know, how people start to actually build out their programming, and and then I just want general advice on how they manage their their day as I start to go and fill this space up and understand how many companies I'm talking to, and then I wrap up by probably connecting with the um, the uh, startups that are in there and finding out if the connections that I've made over the past week have actually moved them forward at all. Gotcha. And so, so far, you're not in your role. Um, what's been the, like, is there a, the most kind of big highlight, memorable activity that, or task that you've done where you think, this is why I do what I do? Um, yeah, it's a good question. Uh, I'd say it was, it was, uh, I was talking with a, um, a, vent- or a Canadian VC um, and walking them through a couple of different like companies that we've been able to find and are now in our space and being able to be like and saying hey I, like I know this is the this is a great fit of a company for you and to be able to go stump those guys on not knowing a company is is always a good moment and to see the connection and then go back to the founder and say hey I've got this 
um, I've got this company or I've got like so-and-so from this VC is very interested in learning more about you. Um, like getting the email back saying, hey, that was a great fit. I'm, we're really interested in these guys is satisfying to me. So that's, uh, that's what I hope to continue to replicate over and over and over with the companies that come through the labs here in Toronto. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I, I'm definitely seeing a bit of corollary there um, with me as well, where like while doing this podcast, I've been meeting a lot of really cool people constantly. And so I have more friends now who come to me for advice yeah. since I've started the podcast. And I think I've been able to find more jobs for my friends than yeah. I've never <laughs> been able to find for myself. And it's nice. It's nice seeing that kind of connection happen. And you, like it's a relationship. It's like food. Like it, you've created something yeah. different. And and you've helped two people be better off than they were without knowing each other. Yeah, yeah, totally. And but you know, in any job, there's there's always you know a downside. Like there's always shit you got to eat. But it's more what kind of shit do you not mind eating? Yeah. Um, and I think that separates whether you're in the right place or not. But what kind of shit do you not mind eating? Which that you think um, people who you know come to this with like wrong expectations might not really enjoy. Um. I think that, uh, yeah, I, I think there's a lot of like um, prep work that is required to go in, and follow up work to go and my day would be great if I could just meet with people, talk with them for, you know, 30 to um, 45 minutes each. And then there's no like afterwards making the, the like the follow up like email to go and connect those people and then continue to follow up with them over and over and over to make sure that that thing happens. It'd be great if I could just send people off on their way and they'd be connected, but they're not. Um, you're changing the path of two individuals. So, and you're hopefully, you know, increasing the likelihood of them actually making either a transaction or working together or anything like that. And that doesn't just happen over one instant. It's like, you know, the, the, in, like the, the instant is you making the connection in your head like, oh, person A is perfect for person B, but you got to do a lot of work to make that thing actually happen. Yeah. So it's, yeah, that, and that doesn't require a lot of innovative thinking. That's just hounding two people to be like, hey, have you followed up with so-and-so? Like, or hey, you said that you were going to do this. You need to go and do this, right? So, so but that's, that's the fun part because yeah. when it actually, the reward at the end of that is that you've really helped somebody and, and that's why I'm here. Yeah, it's like the constant, um, somewhat convincing of like, hey man, like you said you went to do this, this is person, like you're just gonna be such a good fit and then you talk to that person and like you as the kind of, it's kind of like, sometimes it's kind of like the, you know, you're like omnipotent in that you see you see all and you see both sides as you're playing a game. It's like watching a TV show. Yeah. Like, These guys gotta meet. But, but how do I make sure yeah, that they meet in yeah. a way that's actually going to be... And how do I convince them to like get that? Why don't they get that yet? Yeah. Or like you talk, you talk to, you're saying, okay, well, I'm going to connect you with so-and-so at this, like, and you're trying to raise money from them. You're going to, like on both sides, you're acting, you're basically having that conversation with both parties. And then you're hoping that the conversation, like the prep conversation that you had with either party ends up being the exact same as the conversation that they have when you're not around. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, we're kind of hitting, I guess, like the final rounds of our interview and, you know, I have so many more questions I wanted to ask you. So I might, we might do a part two in the future. I don't know. We'll see. Yeah. Um, if you're down and, uh, but a question I like, a couple of questions I like to ask, um, all interviews near the end is 
kind of having you reflect a bit on your past. Um, if 20 year old Tom were to look at where you are now, so 20 year old Tom and third year Queens, what do you think his uh, emotional reaction would be to where you are at? Uh, that's a good question. Um, I think he'd be pretty happy with it because uh, I like. I don't think he'd have any other like real understanding of any of the technology stuff because it, it when I was doing commerce it was much more marketing and kind of really general business one on one stuff, um, and you know the concept of a co working space was pretty much non existent back then, um, but no I think he'd be he'd be pretty interested like I think the one thing I wish it like old old man Tom telling twenty year old Tom would be like learn how to fucking code and uh and go and like figure out how to go build a business right then and there um because there's a ton of opportunity in that space um but you know i don't so that's why i've just continued to sharpen my mb like my business skills because that's the value that i can add to an organization yeah so the question the second question was going to be you know what advice would you give to that two year old Tom said to fucking code yeah yeah code code and uh and go and take the the risk of i i'd say the one other thing is is that um like uh, coming out of undergrad working for caro is a great like great opportunity but finding that startup finding that founder um that job that doesn't really have a, a stalwart brand but there's something in either the the product experience or um or some component of the business that you're passionate about, go and do that because you're going to be taking on a lot more responsibility and you're going to be like probably failing and that exposure to failure early on is going to make it like make you used to it and and you're going to, you know, it's going to change the way that you approach kind of risk and chances are you're going to be better off in the long run because you're going to continue to fail and eventually you're going to hit something big. Excellent. No, that's uh, great advice. Um, thanks, Tom, for coming on the interview. No, yeah, thank you for having me. This was no, great. Yeah, I had a lot of fun, too. Um, and I definitely think our listeners are going to get a lot of value out of it. Um, at the very least, they'll get to hear you know, the voice of the guy who helped bring Deneen to us. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> great. All have right. So thanks for listening to the podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard, please check out other episodes and don't forget to subscribe to stay up to date for the future episodes. Also, I would really appreciate it if you would leave a review on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher, whichever is applicable to you. To see past episodes, you can go to oldmandan.com slash podcasts. Also, you can sign up to my weekly newsletter on my blog, oldmandan.com slash newsletter. You can stay up to date with future podcast episodes that way and included in the newsletter are my book reviews I write, my weekly article in the related to the domain of self-development systems, as well as seven things I learned throughout the week on being healthy, wealthy, and wise. Finally, special thanks to icons8.com for allowing me to use their music, Tiny People, on the podcast. Great. I will see you all next time. Take care.